Well, hello everyone. Together we gather again for our weekly teaching time. And this week we're going to turn our attention to John chapter 11. We have completed our study of the seven letters written to the churches in Revelation. And we're going to turn our attention back to the Gospel of John, which we paused at way back in August of 2019. So we're going to pick this back up where we left off. And today we're going to be joining in in John chapter 11. Now, the entirety of John chapter 11 is devoted to the final miracle that is recorded by John in his gospel. And that miracle is the raising of Lazarus from the dead. Now, so far, we've looked at the miracles that Jesus has performed. In John chapter 3, he turned the water into wine. In John chapter 4, he healed the nobleman's son. In John chapter 5, he healed the man at the pool of Bethesda. And then in John chapter 6, Jesus fed the 5,000, and he also walked on water. Then in John chapter 9, which was the beginning of the end of our study, Jesus healed the man who was born blind. And he performed this miracle in the temple in Jerusalem and has created quite a bit of controversy and hardship for Jesus and the disciples. Well, this miracle that we're looking at today, John chapter 11, the raising of Lazarus, is just like the other miracles recorded in the Bible that have the singular purpose of bringing glory to God through the Son. The miracles are never about the individual's who are experiencing the miracle, but the miracles are always about bringing glory to the Father. Now, in John chapter 10, when Jesus healed a man born blind, he presented himself to the Pharisees as the good shepherd. As he was making that presentation of himself, he said in John 10, 30, I and the Father are one. Now, up to this point, the Jews, the Jewish leaders are already very critical of Jesus. They were already very unhappy with his ministry. They were already talking about formulating a plan that would put an end to his life and his ministry. But here it seems to reach a bit of a breaking point. They picked up stones and they sought to grasp him and Jesus eluded their grasp. And it tells us that after this event of the healing of the man born blind, that Jesus withdrew himself and went to Bethany or to the place beyond the Jordan where John was first baptizing. He put that together. It was Bethany, the place where John first baptized beyond the Jordan. So while he was in Bethany, it is speculated that he was probably there a couple of months. John does not record the impact of Jesus' ministry while in this location, but only says that many believed in him. Now, John chapter 11 and 12 serve as a bridge to Jesus' last visit in Jerusalem, the healing of the man born blind, and his next visit to Jerusalem particularly, and that would be his Passion Week. Now, when he comes to Bethany, where Lazarus and Mary and Martha are, it's close to Jerusalem, but it's not actually in Jerusalem. So there's a little bit of a distinction, as we'll look at this a little bit later in the message. So John chapter 11 can be divided into about seven sections. I haven't finished next week, so I'm not sure if it'll be three or four. But today we're just going to look at the first four sections, and that will carry us all the way through John chapter 27. Now, because of the length of this passage, I won't read it all at once as I typically would, but I will read the pertinent verses as we deal with each of the sections that we're going to look at. So let's begin in John chapter 11, verse 1, and we're going to look at the setting. 
So we see the setting in the first two verses. Now, a certain man was sick, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary, and her sister Martha. It was the Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was sick. So as we look at the setting, the first piece that we're going to see are the characters. The first character is the object of the miracle, and that is Lazarus himself. And it's identified by the village where Lazarus lived, and that is Bethany. The name Lazarus is a shortened version of the Hebrew name Eleazar, which means God helped us. Now, it was a common name, but we don't know particularly a lot about the relationship between Lazarus and Jesus. But this Bethany that, that is mentioned here in the gospel is not the same Bethany where Jesus was beyond the Jordan. It's the Bethany that is near to Jerusalem, the Bethany of Judea. And we see this referenced in verse 18 of chapter 11. So this Bethany in Judea is about a one day's journey from where Jesus is, the Bethany that is beyond the Jordan. And that's an important part of the timeline that is a part of this narrative as we look at Lazarus being in the tomb for four days when Jesus finally arrives on the scene. So Lazarus is identified by the village, but also by his sisters, Mary and Martha. Now we're first introduced to Mary and Martha in Luke chapter 10. And if you remember, they were making arrangements for Jesus's visit and Martha was busy as a hostess preparing all the things that were necessary to take care of all of the guests. And Mary wasn't busy. By Martha's estimation, she was lazily sitting at the feet of Jesus, but she was attentive to who Jesus was, and she was worshiping Jesus for who he was, while Martha was very distracted and busy making the arrangements. So Mary and Martha are also very common names. And so when John identifies Lazarus of Bethany, the sister, the brother of Mary and Martha, makes it very, very clear who is being referenced in this narrative. Now, this Mary, the sister of Martha, is the same Mary that we'll see in John chapter 12. It is the one who anointed Jesus' feet and wiped his feet with her hair, even though John doesn't tell us about that event until chapter 12. So we've seen the characters. Number two in our narrative, we're going to look at the concern. We see the concern in verse 3. So the sister sent word to him, saying, Lord, behold, he whom you love is sick. So the concern is very obvious. Lazarus is sick. Now, we're not told about the extent of the relationship between Jesus and Lazarus, but based upon this verse, Jesus and Lazarus, like Mary and Martha, all had a very close relationship. The sisters knew of Jesus' love for Lazarus, and they assumed that Jesus would want to be aware of Lazarus's illness. And of course, they wanted Jesus to come so that he could tend Lazarus and potentially heal him whenever the sickness is. The nature of Lazarus's illness is not mentioned, but it was very serious, so serious that the sisters had come to the conclusion that Jesus was likely the only hope for their brother's improvement. So they had seen Jesus's work, they had known about Jesus's miracles, and they believed that Jesus alone was the only one that could provide the help that their brother needed. 
So we've seen the characters and we've seen the concern. Now we see number three, the casual response. Verse four tells us, when Jesus heard this, he said, this sickness is not to end in death, but for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified by it. Now, I would imagine to the disciples who learned of this illness and then to Mary and Martha who were waiting on Jesus' return and he didn't come, they must have thought that Jesus' response to this serious illness was one of a very casual nature. Now, the messenger has reached Jesus with the news of Lazarus is sick, and his response to this news is simply, this sickness will not end in death. Now, this doesn't mean that Lazarus isn't going to die, because we obviously know that he has died, but that the physical death wasn't going to be the final outcome of what had just happened to Lazarus. It's important for us to note that because sometimes it is God's will that his children are sick, and sometimes it is God's will that his children even die. But the purpose is always the same. Jesus' seemingly casual response is for the glory of God. Now, the glory of God is a central theme all throughout the Bible. And while it may seem implausible to us that God is to be glorified in all of life's unfortunate and difficult and unwanted circumstances, what we endure does nothing to diminish the glory of God. We need to be reminded of that. We need to emphasize that, that what we go through in this sin-sick and in this sin-cursed world will never diminish the glory that is in God. God's glory is intrinsic to his nature. For example, in Psalm 29.3, it says, The voice of the Lord is upon the waters. The God of glory thunders. The Lord is over many waters. That phrase, the God of glory thunders, isn't talking about what God does, but it talks about who God is. He is also called the King of glory. In Psalm 24, verses 7 through 10, it says, Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is the King of glory? The Lord strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the King of glory. And not only is his glory intrinsic, and not only is he called the King of glory, but he is also the glory of Israel. In 1 Samuel 15.29 it says, Also the glory of Israel will not lie or change his mind, for he is not a man that he should change his mind. So this glory of God, as we've looked at, as a part of God's intrinsic nature, is also dispersed amongst the members of the Trinity. God the Father is called the Father of glory. In Ephesians 1.17, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation and the knowledge of him. This title is also given to Jesus in 1 Corinthians 2.8, the wisdom which none of the rulers of this age has understood, for if they had understood it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. We also see this title given to the Holy Spirit. 
First Peter 4.14 If you are reviled for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. So God's intrinsic glory is uniquely his and nothing is ever going to change that. Not anything that we experience, not any hardship or difficulty that we endure will ever diminish the glory of God. So while Jesus's response to the news that Lazarus is sick might seem to be casual on the surface, he tells us very specifically that the purpose of this illness is going to result in the glory of God and then the glory of the Son. His concern for this family, his love for this family is underscored in verse 5. It says, now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So it almost seems like John wants to dispel the potential that someone might read of this account and say, what's the deal? Why isn't Jesus tending tending this? We thought he loved them. So John emphasizes that he does care for this family. We need to remember that Jesus isn't unconcerned. He isn't indifferent. He isn't too busy, which on the surface makes verse 6 even more puzzling to this seemingly casual response. Verse 6 says, so when he heard that he was sick, he stayed, he then stayed two days longer in the place where he was. So Jesus is about a day's journey away from Bethany of Judea. He gets the news from the messenger and he decides to stay put, to stay where he is for two more days. Since Jesus had the glory of God in mind, he wasn't going to do what the sisters had asked him to do, nor was he going to do what others thought he should do Jesus is going to stick to the Father's timeline, and he was going to do that which was going to bring the Father the greatest amount of glory. So that is what we see in the first section, the setting. Now, number two, we're going to look at the the disciples' dialogue. It begins in verse 7, and we read this. Then after this, he said to the disciples, Let us go to Judea again. So this seemingly insensitive two-day delay is important for a couple of reasons. Number one, it is likely that Lazarus had already died by the time Jesus received the message, which is consistent with his being dead for four days, as referenced in verse 17. Secondly, Lazarus's raising from the dead would strengthen the faith of the sisters and the disciples more than his healing would have. Thirdly, it would ensure that Lazarus was really and truly dead and not healed from a near-death illness. And number four, his raising would clearly be an act of divine intervention. Now, what was common in the Jewish thought in this day and age was that the soul would stay near the dead body for about three days, trying to re-enter this body. But after decomposition would begin to set in, the soul would be locked out, and then it would leave, and it would go to Sheol, the place of the dead, and that's where it would remain. Now, this was a Jewish belief 
This was not a biblical teaching. So Jesus's casual response in the beginning of this dialogue with the disciples is important because it emphasizes the reality that Lazarus's raising could only be explained by divine intervention. So number one in this dialogue, we see the disciples' concern. The disciples aren't concerned about Lazarus. They're concerned about something else. Verse 8, the disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you, and you are going there again. So after this delay, Jesus says, let's go. And the disciples are concerned because danger awaits in Judea. Now, as a reminder, John chapter 10, this altercation, if you will, with the Jewish leaders that nearly resulted in the stoning of Jesus was not that far ago, and it is still very fresh in the minds of the disciples. They are a day's journey away. They are enjoying a viable ministry where they are. Jesus has said that Lazarus's illness was not going to end in death. So why don't we just stay where we are, stay far away from danger, and continue to do what we've been doing? Because after all, Jesus could heal Lazarus from afar, just like he did with the healing of the nobleman's son. So this is potentially what the disciples were thinking when Jesus said, let's go to Judea. The second part of the dialogue that we have with the disciples is the Lord's resolve. Against this objection that the disciples state, Jesus says in verse 9, Are there not twelve hours in a day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. Now, to help dispel the fear and the concern that the disciples had, Jesus uses a very common Jewish parable of that day. Now, to help this make sense to us, we need to recognize that the Jews divided the daylight, and the 12 hours. Now, as the seasons changed, those hours weren't always, by our account, 60 minutes. They didn't have the precise time-measuring devices that we have today. And so regardless of the season, a day the daylight was divided up into 12 different hours. So when Jesus uses the phrase, 12 hours in a day, He's using that symbolically of the earthly ministry that has been given to him by the Father. Just as no one can lengthen the 12 hours in a day, no one can lengthen the 12 hours that God has given the Father, that the Father has given to the Son for his earthly ministry. No one can lengthen it and no one can shorten it. The phrase, walks in a day, is symbolic of safety. Nothing was going to happen while it was stale daylight, unlike traveling in the nighttime when danger was absolutely everywhere. Almost nobody would travel during the night unless it was absolutely necessary because of all the danger that would be in the areas that they would be traveling in. So we have this contrast between the daylight and the darkness. It is the time that God has given Jesus for his earthly ministry. It is also symbolic of the end of Jesus's earthly ministry when God's plan of redemption would be complete. So we read then in verse 10, but if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles 
because the light is not with them. That phrase, walks in the night, is symbolic of the end of Jesus' ministry, which was actually very, very close, but would only come in God's appointed time. Now, this idea that the Lord would stumble or fall into death, which is inherent in the word stumble, is also a part of God's predetermined time. Nothing was going to prevent Jesus' stumbling into death because it was the plan of the Father from all eternity past, and it would consummate this eternal plan of redemption. So Jesus was saying that my ministry is determined by the Father, and nothing can change that. Nothing can make it longer. Nothing can make it shorter. Not your fears, not the efforts of the Jewish leaders, but only the Father can bring about the end of the daylight, his earthly ministry, and bring upon the world this nighttime the end of Jesus' physical presence, and nothing can ever change that. Jesus had a clear direction from the Father to go to Judea, not as the sisters requested, and not as others might have thought he should, but because it was the Father's will that Jesus go and raise Lazarus from the dead. Now, to continue this analogy, if Jesus didn't do what the Father had prescribed, then he would be disobeying and not fulfilling the Father's purpose for his earthly ministry. And this is a reference to the darkness, not doing what God wanted, being removed from God's presence. He would then be walking in darkness out of fear for the Jewish leaders, not willing to go to the cross, not willing to fulfill the Father's plan of redemption. And Jesus is saying, this is not going to happen. As long as it's daylight, as long as I'm still here, I'm going to do what the Father has directed me. I do not fear the darkness that is about to come. Now, the third part of this dialogue that we have is the confusion, the confusion that the disciples have from what Jesus has just said to them. We see this in verses 11 through 13. This he said, and after that said to them, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go so so that I may awaken him out of sleep. The disciples then said to him, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he will recover. Now, Jesus has spoken of his death, but they thought he was speaking of literal sleep. So when Jesus had mentioned this common parable to the disciples, he paused, he let that sink in for a moment, and then he continued the dialogue with them. So it's not uncommon for the disciples to misunderstand what Jesus is saying. Jesus is often speaking in the spiritual or in the figurative, and they understand it as purely literal. So they're thinking of Lazarus being in a literal sleep or in a sickness, not in death. If Lazarus was just sick, then perhaps he was just sleeping it off, and when he awoke from this sleep, he would feel much better, and therefore Jesus' journey to Judea was unnecessary. So it's hard to know if this was an attempt of the disciples to keep Jesus going because of their fear, or if it was just simply a matter of them not really understanding what Jesus was saying to them. But either way, Jesus' words weren't successful in erasing the concern the disciples had about 
a trip to Judea that Jesus had just announced. So number four in this dialogue is the clarification. The clarification is in verse 14. So Jesus then said to them plainly, Lazarus is dead. Uh, You really can't misunderstand that. There isn't any spiritual or figurative language to interpret on that. Lazarus is dead, and they understand exactly what Jesus means now. So the messenger had arrived the day before and had only said that Lazarus was sick and his sisters were requesting Jesus to come. But in his omniscience, Jesus knows that Lazarus was already dead by the time the messenger had greeted him. So as we put Jesus' omniscience and his delay in a timeline we get later in this chapter, with Lazarus being dead for four days, it makes perfect sense that by the time the messenger reached Jesus, Lazarus was already dead. So Jesus' two-day delay wasn't casual, and it wasn't one out of a lack of concern. It was one that first and foremost was concerned about the glory of God, and also in his omniscience, he knew that Lazarus was dead, and for the reasons already mentioned, Jesus wanted to be sure that this eventual raising of Lazarus would be credited to divine intervention, not something else. So due to the lack of Excuse me, verse 15, and I am glad for your sakes that I was not there so that you may believe, but let us go to him. So due to the lack of belief or the incomplete belief that disciples had about this sleepiness of Lazarus or this death of Lazarus, Jesus says that it is better for the disciples that Lazarus has died because in the end, Lazarus is being raised from the dead will strengthen their faith greater than if Jesus had just healed him for whatever illness he had. So not only will Lazarus' raising bring the Father glory, but the resolute faith of the disciples would bring Jesus glory and the Father as they eventually took up the responsibility of their ministry as apostles, as we see recorded for us not only in the book of Acts, but through the epistles and letters that are recorded in the New Testament. So if Jesus had been in Bethany of Judea when Lazarus was first struck ill, and if he would have likely healed him at that point, their faith would not have been as strong. And now they are going to see the greater miracle, and that is Lazarus being raised from the dead. Lastly, in this dialogue with the disciples, we see Number five, the commitment. Verse 16, therefore Thomas, who is called Didymus, said to his fellow disciples, let us also go so that we may die with him. So resolved that they can't change Jesus' mind, Thomas speaks up for the whole group of disciples and basically says this, well, if he's going to go to Judea and die, then we may as well go with him and die alongside of him. So in this, we see a couple of things. We see the love of Thomas. We see the devotion and the loyalty of Thomas. But we also see some pessimism within Thomas, who believes that Jesus is who he says he is, but also is concerned that Jesus might die. And if Jesus is going to go to Judea and die, then we 
are going to go with him and follow. Now, as we know the rest of the story, the disciples were not as resolute in their desire to die with Jesus because after he was arrested and tried, they scattered everywhere. And in fact, Peter denied even knowing him. So now, as we've looked at the dialogue with the disciples, we look at number three in our outline, and that is this. Jesus meets Martha. This begins in verse 17. So when Jesus came to Judea, he found that he, Lazarus, had already been in the tomb four days. So the first thing that we see in this is that Lazarus has been entombed for four days. He didn't just die. He's been in the tomb for four days. Now, let's put the timeline together again. If it took the messenger one day to get to Jesus, and if Jesus delayed two days in Bethany beyond the Jordan, and then took a day to travel to get to the village of Judea, then this four-day timeline makes perfect sense. Now, with modern resuscitation efforts, it is possible to see someone brought back to life who has been declared dead. But that's for someone who has just died. Lazarus has been dead for four days, and it is quite probable that some amount of decomposition has already become, and this means that Lazarus was really and truly dead. Number two, as Jesus meets Martha, we learn that he is near Jerusalem. Verse 18, now Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off. So while he wasn't in Jerusalem proper, he was close enough to Jerusalem that it was very likely that Jewish leaders and others would learn of Jesus' presence, and that is why it heightened the fear that the disciples had that something bad might happen to Jesus and to them if they were to go to Bethany of Judea. So number three, we see as Jesus meets Martha that the mourning is still ongoing. Verse 19, and many of the Jews have come to Martha and Mary to consult them concerning their brother. Now it was the, the spiritual duty of Jewish leaders and other Jews to go to the home of one that was in mourning to offer some kind of comfort and consolation as they grieved the loss of a loved one. So it's likely that Lazarus and Mary and Martha, Martha were wealthy. They were perhaps very well connected. And because of this, there would probably be a larger number of people than usual who would be comforting them over the death of Lazarus. So now this is four days after, G after Lazarus's death. And there is still a group of, group of people there who are mourning his passing. And that brings us to the fourth major point in our outline, and that is the dialogue that Jesus has with Martha. This begins in verse 20. Verses 20 and 21 say, Martha, therefore, when she heard that Jesus was coming, went to meet him, but Mary stayed at the house. Martha then said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been there, my brother would not have died. So first thing that we see in this dialogue with Martha is the obvious, and that is that Martha is hurting. Now, as a footnote to this, Mary is perhaps unaware that Jesus is coming. Perhaps she wasn't told that. Or perhaps she was waiting for Jesus' eventual arrival at the house. 
But for whatever reason, Mary stayed put, and Martha is the one that went out to meet Jesus. So we probably shouldn't make too much into that, but I thought it was interesting with all of the negativity that Martha gets for being the busy administrative hostess. She's the one that goes to meet Jesus after she learns that he's coming and as she grieves the loss of her brother. So she says to him, if only you would have been here, my brother would not have died. Now, this was not a rebuke against Jesus. This was not a complaint that she was registering to him. It is simply an expression of her grief, wishing that things were different. Now, I think about this, and there are many, many people who in their expression of grief say things like that. If only we would have taken him to the doctor sooner. If only we would have paid closer attention. If only we would have done something different from what we did, perhaps this individual would not have died. Well, we really can't play that blame game because it doesn't change anything and it doesn't do any good. It is helpful and it is healthy to have these expressions of sorrow and grief in our time of hurting and they are not to be understood as a rebuke. They are just a part of the grieving process. So in verse 22, Martha continues to say, Even now, although you weren't here to heal my brother and he has died, even now I know that whatever you ask of God, God will give you. Now, this is a general statement that Martha makes about God's obvious blessing on Jesus' life and it is a recognition of Jesus's special relationship with the Father. Nobody had a relationship with the Father like Jesus did. None of the rabbis, none of the other elders or scribes, and certainly not the high priests. And so this is a recognition on Martha's part of this unique relationship that Jesus has with the Father. This is not a request that Martha is making to Jesus that she thinks he should or could raise her brother Lazarus from the dead. Now, it's very, very clear as we look a little bit further down in this chapter, verse 39, when Martha objects to the removal of the tomb because of the decomposition and the potential odor that would come from that. So it's important that we understand what Martha is and is not saying here. She's simply saying, if you would have been here, you probably would have prevented this death. But even now, I know that you have this special relationship with God, and whatever you ask of God, God gives to you. So in this expression of grief, we see, number two, that Jesus comforts her. Verse 23, Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Now, Jesus' meaning is right here, Right now, he's speaking literally, but Martha understands this to be figuratively. Martha thinks that Jesus is comforting her with the popular Jewish belief about the resurrection of the dead that would come on the last day. So, number three in this dialogue, we see her confusion Verse 24, Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. So Martha believed in the resurrection of the dead on the last day. The Old Testament 
taught the resurrection of the dead on the last day. Jesus taught about the resurrection of the dead on the last day. And most Jews also believed in that. The exception would be the Sadducees who did not believe in a resurrection. So Martha's belief and her comment here is her belief in the resurrection on the last day. She's not thinking that Jesus is about to raise her brother who's been in the tomb for four days. She's simply confirming the common and popular Jewish belief of the resurrection on the last day. Now, number four, we see Jesus's declaration, verses 25 and 26. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? Now, when Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life, it is the fifth of the I am statements that are recorded in the Gospel of John. Jesus will raise the dead in the future resurrection, as Martha alludes to earlier, but he is also going to raise her brother now, which Martha does not expect at all. Now, he is the resurrection and the life. And in the next two statements, Jesus isn't saying the same thing twice. He is pointing out two very different truths, but these truths are complementary to one another. Jesus says, the one who believes in me will live even if he dies physically because... I will raise him up on the last day. That speaks of our bodily resurrection. On the day that Jesus takes his church home, we will receive a new and a glorified body. And since everyone who lives and believes in him has eternal life, they will never die spiritually since spiritual life cannot be extinguished by physical death. So two different things, two different truths that are complementary to one another. As a result, all who trust in Christ can say, as we read in 1 Corinthians 15, 55, O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? So after Jesus makes this declaration, he asks her this very specific question, Do you believe this? Jesus was not asking if she believed that her brother Lazarus was going to be raised from the dead after being in the tomb for four days. He is asking her, do you believe that I am the source of the resurrection and that I am the source of eternal life? This is the question that Jesus is asking Mary. And it's important to remember that oftentimes Jesus asks questions that aren't obvious at the time, but they are much obvious later, and it is for the benefit of those who know and read about his death, burial, and resurrection, his ascension, and his fulfillment of all that was prophesied about him in the Old Testament. So after this declaration... And this question, do you believe this? We see number five, her confession. Verse 27, she said to him, Yes, Lord, I have believed that you are the Christ, 
the Son of God, even he who comes into the world. Now, Martha's confession, her response to the declaration of Jesus, stands alongside the other great confessions as to the identity of Jesus as recorded in the New Testament. It is incredibly complete. It fully answers the question that Jesus has asked her, even though she doesn't fully understand the implications of her positive response. When she says that, yes, she believes, she believes, letter A, in his Messiahship. I believe that you are the Christ. And what that means is that Martha believes that Jesus is, in fact, the promised and the long-awaited Messiah. Letter B, she believes in his divine descent. She believes that he is the Son of God, the one and only begotten of the Father, the one who has come down out of heaven and has visited the earth that he has created. Letter C, she believes in his fulfillment of all Jewish expectations. He is the one who comes into the world, the prophesied and predicted deliverer who is sent by God. Now, she believes these things on a rudimentary level. She will come to understand these things much differently after his resurrection and through the teaching of the apostles by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. So even though she makes this resounding confession of faith, like the disciples, her understanding is incomplete. Even with all that she has just confessed to be true, she will resist when asked to roll away the stone of the tomb of her brother Lazarus. We must always be careful that our confession matches up with our actions. Verbal confessions and life commitments aren't always the same, which is why we must continue to grow in our relationship with the Lord. It's why we must always strive to walk with him day by day, obeying all that he has commanded us to do, trusting in the provision of his presence, clinging to his promises, and never letting go of the hope that we have in him. I know that you know people whose professions that come from their mouth don't match up with the actions that are in their lifestyle, and we can call them hypocrites, we can call them imperfect projects, we can call them brothers and sisters along the way. Whatever we might conclude from that kind of an experience with another individual, we must first challenge ourselves to do all that we know to do to fulfill our profession of faith that he is the Christ, the Son of God, the one who has come into the world. Now, we live that out imperfectly, but we must always strive to be conformed to the image of his Son while we live our lives on this earth. Now, next time we will conclude this, heal, this raising of Lazarus as we will finish chapter 11. But I invite you to join with me in prayer, if you will. 
Well, Father, we thank you for this incredible narrative that we are so privileged to understand. We thank you of the hope that is ours, not only in your healing of us physically, of your provision for us physically while on this earth, but also the certainty of what will happen to us when this physical life comes to an end. We know that we will be physically raised from the dead on the last day. We know that even though we physically die, our spirit will go to be with you in heaven for all of eternity. And God, I pray that that would bring us great hope and confidence and peace and joy while we continue to live out our faith as imperfectly as we do in this day and age. Father, we thank you for the way you meet our needs. We thank you for the way you have revealed the truth of who you are to us through your word. And I pray, Father, that you would continue to do the great work that you began on the day of our salvation as we give ourselves to you, submitting to your lordship and committing ourselves to walk with you as faithful children. We give you thanks and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.